Taxi, I was, uh, I was hoping you'd forget that and there'd be a Fortuna out there broken down needing to be towed. Um, and I would have phoned up some Land Rover people to, to tow that Toyota. <laughs> Um, welcome to church. My name's Paul, if you're here. Uh, JJ has left his phone here. Um, so if during the service I just start sending WhatsApps off his phone, uh, you'll know what's going on. It's huge power. Uh, a whole person's whole life uh, seems to be there. Uh, he did brilliant, didn't he? The worship team. Thank you guys so much. Uh, that was amazing. The, um, the, the feeble round of applause was not a sign of just how well you did. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Um, if you're visiting, you've come at a sort of odd moment, I suppose, because we're finishing a series of four weeks looking at really who our church is and what makes us tick and where we're going and why we're going there and what it's going to look like when we get there. Um, and so in one way, I suppose it's really a good time for you to have come to sort of look in. Uh, in another way, I suppose you can feel like a you know, you're just peeking in on us talking about some family stuff before you come next week for free food uh, and then to get connected and then it'll all apply to you anyway. Um, but the, the question I want us to sort of deal with as we conclude this week is really, what is church for? So you might have heard about this idea of enjoying God and finding Him deeply satisfying and glorifying Him in that way, and this idea of loving people as He loves you, and, and finding the purpose and calling on your life, and maybe have some, some kind of answer to the what are you for question, but what is church for? Because I'd be sympathetic if you, like many people in our neighborhood, drive past these big buildings uh, that look very expensive, that hosts Christian karaoke sessions once a week, uh, and then some quasi-motivational speaker gets up and quotes from some Iron Age texts and tells people what they're supposed to do. And I, I can understand why people look at it going, oh, that seems like a drain. That doesn't seem like it adds much value. That seems like a little bit of a waste of time. Certainly, what happens there for the rest of the week? What is church for? Another way that people generally ask this question is, Paul, what do you do not on Sundays? <laughs> which, which is a question for a, for a different conversation. Um, but it's the same sort of idea. What is this organization for? What, what, is, what is God's plan for it? Because Jesus established this organization. And Jesus thinks this organization is so beautiful. And bear in mind what else is in Jesus' view. Every incredible galaxy and constellation and supernova created, every amazing hidden part of this planet, all the wonderful people. He's not coming back for any of them. He's coming back for the church. He thinks this organization is incredibly beautiful. He describes it as the hope of the world, not the cure for disease X or Y, not the finally a good government that turns up somewhere and does something glorious and establishes a you know, benevolent dictatorship when I take power and that'll be good news for the nation that gives me it. No, no, no. Jesus thinks it's the church that's the hope of the world. And Jesus loves the church so much and finds the church so beautiful that he's coming back for her. So what is this organization for? Um, yeah, I decided to wait until yesterday to decide if I understood what rugby was for. Um, and now I've decided that it's, it's pointless. Um, but, but, but this is a much more important question than that, because this isn't just recreation. And really, that's an important thing to say, that, that you're never going to really enjoy church or be the church, which is what you're designed to be if you're going to go on a journey with God, if you see this as recreation. This is supposed to really matter to you quite a lot more. I remember whenever I've had to figure out a church move, if I'm supposed to go here or there, people saying, you know, this is as big a decision as who you're going to marry, which feels a bit dramatic. But in some ways, I understand what they're saying, that the church you're part of is a huge, huge factor in your destiny and the things that you're going to end up doing on this planet. This is not just recreation. This is not just spiritual infotainment on a Sunday. We, we really have to answer the question, why does the church exist? What is it for? And so that's how I want us to, to wrap this series up, looking at the kind of 
impact that this organization is supposed to have. Um, okay, so that's the plan. Uh, but before I do that, I need to just update you on where we are uh, in this building project that we're busy cooking up and, and sort of building some momentum with. If you're visiting once again, it I feels awkward for you to be eavesdropping on this. But if you don't know, our church wants to outgrow or has outgrown this space. There's not enough space for kids upstairs. There's not enough space for us to do what we really want to do in the country club. And also, our church exists to make Jesus accessible to people. Our church exists to bring the kingdom of heaven into our neighborhood. Our church exists to impact our community. And so to be tucked away in a country club has in many ways been brilliant because it's a public space. Um, but in other ways, we felt like this is such an exclusive venue, isn't it? Not everyone really feels that comfortable to go to a country club. Uh, and we would love to do something that's fully in the midst of community, where people are going to be interacting with the church much more easily. And so the dream, the vision, the thing we're going to do is to build a mixed-use space. If you've heard this before, then just get excited again. We're desperate to have a tertiary institution as a tenant of ours, and we've started speaking to some uh, and, and have had some really positive feedback because there's nothing in this area. So all the best and brightest leave, um, and all the weird ones stay um, and go to the Red Black Bar at Oxford and play football with me. Um, and we're going, no, the society deserves better than that. Our, our neighborhood um, should have something that brings the best and brightest in. And, and we would love to see all kinds of interesting tertiary institutions be tenants of this spot. We're also um, wanting to see that the kids' church facility that we build is going to run as a creche and preschool during the week so that there's a, you know, a reason for people to be on the campus. Uh, we're, we're wanting to let out to some other retail and commercial and, and, and office space so that there's all sorts of different reasons for people to be on this property. And we want it to be beautiful. We want it to, to inspire. We, we want to create it in such a way that, yes, there's church there on a Sunday, but there's great gigs on a Saturday night, and there's interesting political debates that happen on a Thursday evening, and there's just multiple reasons why this property is going to add value to our neighborhood and make Hillcrest better than it otherwise would have been, or Kloof better than it otherwise would have been, depending on where we end up. Um, and ultimately, of course, we want to do church in the midst of all of this. So that's the plan. And as soon as you start fighting for this, you need to know it becomes really tempting to buy a cheap piece of farmland and put a shed up. Because you could do that like this, and it would cost barely anything. And surely we can do most of the stuff that the church exists to do over there. Why would we waste all this effort trying to attract tenants and investors and developers and do this thing in the middle of the city? But the question that you have to ask yourself is, how are we going to influence and impact the most? Because if that's what our church is designed to be, if we're designed to be the hope of the world, then, then it feels like it's worth, if possible, and let's not knock the farm idea, but it's worth, if possible, getting stuck into the middle of town. So the good news is we've been looking um, on Old Main Road near to Lily's Quarter, two potential options. One of the sites was going to have sewage issues and zoning problems, and who wants sewage issues? Um, certainly not me. You guys seem okay with it by your silence. Um, <laughs> Weird. Uh, but then the other side over the road from that, also near to Lily's Quarter, most of the land would be what's zoned already the correct thing. It's flat. It's going to be great. There's a piece of property in the front which needs to be included. We need to buy it as well in order for the whole thing to work. Uh, and the owner of that land just this week has come back saying, oh, I like what you guys are up to. I'm willing to sell to you for a fair price, which is amazing because people tend to want to hang on to property on Old Main Road and, and, and really hope for the best. And then knowing that we were going to be behind them would have given this guy a reason to um, have us over a barrel and, and sort of charge the earth. But he's very willing to, to talk with us. So who knows? Hopefully soon we'll, I'll be able to say we've put the deposit down, the land's on, the developers are in, the, the tenants are in. It's all getting ready. Various people are very keen to rent from us. Uh, so that's the one thing for you to know, that it's close, close, nearly, nearly, and we're really excited about it. Um, and I'm already having visions of Wes Van Eden, who's in our church, painting. Durban's best mural on one of the big walls and, and just incredible stuff. The other thing to tell you is the incredible faithfulness and generosity in our church. So 
of course we want to attract some tenants and some investors for it to be a mixed-use space, but our church is going to have to have some skin in the game. And as a little community, we've raised 1.3 million rand already, uh, which is just blowing me away. Um, and... And that's, yeah, that's just super exciting. And, and, and much of that is in the bank already. Some of it's on its way in with the family who's doing a grand a month or another family doing 10 grand a month. And both of those are equally amazing to me, the haves and the have-nots being faithful with the little. Um, because you've got to know, I mean, we, we've heard this often enough, God is never going to shortcut the be faithful with little and you'll be entrusted with much. And so as a church, I believe we've been faithful with Country Club. All of us have been faithful with what he's called us to sow. And so let's expect that God is going to give us huge opportunities as we're faithful with what we we have. Uh, and so thank you, and that's so exciting, and I, I need you to just to know where we're at, and we, I will hopefully have more to tell you soon. But let's cycle back, because here's the big danger, right? We could build some big, glorious building, and make that the point, and we can long for it, and long for it, and count down the days, and have prayer meetings on there, and make this incredible place, and, and all strange young millennials are going to be hanging out there doing things that we don't really understand, and we're going to, you know, think, this is it, this is what... The, but then once you've got the building, you've got it, and then if you don't really know what you exist for that thing doesn't end up being a tool to serve some other purpose. It becomes a noose around your neck. And this is the same with other good things, right? Many of us go, well, marriage, marriage. If I could just get to marriage, that would solve everything. And then you get married and realize that if you haven't spent the last 10 years figuring out who you actually are and how you want to live, you've got nothing to offer in marriage. Or married couples go, well, kids, kids, if we could just get kids. And then you get kids and you have them. And then by the time they leave, because they tend to leave, they're supposed to leave. You should encourage them to leave. That, that then after that, it's like, oh, wait, what were we actually about? Like, it's, it's so easy, isn't it, to make something that's supposed to be part of the story become the point of the story. And then when it comes to its natural next chapter, as all things do, if you haven't got a clear why, why you do church, why you do your marriage, why you exist on this planet, then when you remove that thing, then suddenly you realize you're a little exposed, a little unclear on what the point is. So let's cycle back to that original question. What is the church for? What should Paul do with the rest of the days of his week? these kinds of good questions. We're going to go to Jeremiah 29, okay? And Jeremiah 29 is just an amazing passage. So I'm going to read a fair chunk of context, then explain it to you, and then we'll get to the money shot in the last few verses. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King uh, Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and metal workers departed from Jerusalem. You don't want to lose your eunuchs. You need those guys. Um, so them and the steel workers and all the sort of top tier of educated and influential people have been exiled out of Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphah, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, had sent. If you just power through them, no one questions, right? You just, like, that must be how it was supposed to be said. Um, had sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and it said, right, so what's going on here? Um, if you just need a quick catch up on the people of Israel. God did this amazing thing where they were in captivity and slavery in Egypt, and he grabbed hold of this people who weren't even really a nation and didn't have much going for them, galvanized them, and had them commit this incredibly unusual act in the ancient world, which is to take on a massive superpower and win a ragtag bunch of slaves with no sense of well, certainly no training, no military might, no money to speak of, but you know that it's deeper than that. Psychologically, if you've been a slave for generations, what's actually going to cause a group of people like that to rise up and rebel against the might of Egypt and that huge culture? And they did, and God did this amazing thing 
Red Sea opens, the Jordan, like it's across the river on dry land. And in the wilderness, he turns the people who weren't a nation into a fearsome collective with a clear identity. And there's Jericho and the walls falling down and all those crazy evil people that lived in Canaan get booted out. And the promised land, the people of Israel get to the promised land. And the ultimate pinnacle of the promised land is Jerusalem. Salem means peace, the city of peace, the place where the people of God, who he's rescued out of slavery and turned into something quite formidable, get to be and commune with and worship their God. That's the promised land. And as a side note, the story of Exodus, that amazing story, is your story as well if you've believed in Jesus and come to have a saving faith. Because the story goes, you were in slavery. I was in slavery. I was trapped wanting the things I wanted even though they were bad for me. Nowhere, like impossible for me to get anywhere near God who was the very thing my soul craved because he's holy and I was filthy. And so I was stuck with no hope. And then Jesus grabbed hold of people who weren't really people and took us into freedom, crossing all kinds of amazing things. And now we get to live in the city of peace with God. You have peace with God if you've trusted Jesus. So Exodus is just this amazing story. And Jewish people obviously love Jerusalem. Jerusalem represents this incredible climax to the story, this place where they get to connect with God. But then once they're there, they blow it. Time after time, they don't really trust God. They don't really worship Him. They corrupt themselves. They go after other idols. They mess it up. And prophets like Jeremiah Keep warning them, guys, you're blowing it, you're blowing it. God can't let this go on forever. He won't be mocked. You're going to need to take heed to actually trust the God that got you into this place instead of just committing adultery on him the whole time. And the people of Israel go, yeah, 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 whatever. And so eventually, God follows through. And the mighty Persians and Babylonians and various other invaders wipe the place out. And there's a final remnant, the tribe of Judah around Jerusalem. And then shock, horror, dreadful, even Jerusalem gets taken. This is like psychologically scarring, right? You've got to get a sense of just how traumatic this would be. And now you've been shipped off to exile, a place that you don't want to be. That was the promised land and the place of peace. Babylon is, as you know in, in literature today, it's the place of corruption and evil. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a good place to be. And you're there because you blew it. So try to put your mind into the minds of the Israelites who are sitting in Babylon, hating that they're there, wishing they could be in Jerusalem. They've blown it somehow. They can't be there. Does God even have our backs anymore? Seems like he doesn't. And into that context, into that moaning and grumbling and wishing they could be anywhere else but there. And now can I just suggest to you that that, what I've just described sounds a lot like most South Africans I speak to. Wishing I could be anywhere but here. This place feels corrupt, not trustworthy. Is God even with us? If I could just get there. Into that context, God says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. I'm still your God. I'm still the God of you guys. I've not abandoned you. I'm still with you. I still have a plan. In fact, I'm going to take such responsibility for being involved in your story. I'm going to say this. To all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I'm still involved. I can still turn this around. In fact, I've, I've been involved in all the details of your life up until now. Yes, I know you're here and you wish you were there, but I'm with you here. This is what you should do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. In other words, take valuable things and put it into the soil in this place you wish you could be somewhere else than and trust that that stuff is going to turn into fruit and you're still going to be here to reap it. Invest. Put roots down. Take wives 
and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may be sons and daughters. Multiply there through generations. Get stuck in. And multiply, don't decrease. And you feel how risky this must have been for people who didn't want to be there, who saw their whole future and everything they were hoping for in this idyllic city of peace where there would be this godly government and God is saying, no, you're here in this corrupt place and you think you might have blown it that you've ended up here and you wish you could have been somewhere else. But get stuck in and for generations, invest. Seek the welfare of the city. This is the money shot where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. We've said a lot of stuff about what church is supposed to be, but if it doesn't sound something like that, we can't have got it right. Can we? People of God, where I've put you, I've put you on purpose. Invest there. Make it better. Pray for the welfare of the city and then don't stop there. Seek the welfare of the city. Actually do some stuff to make it better. And anticipate that you're here for the long haul. Of course, if God changes things, he's going to change things. But take wives, have children, give your children in marriage. Get involved in the fabric of society. Make the place better. Church, if we just exist to practice for heaven, why did he leave us here? Of course, we want to introduce people to Jesus and have them fall more deeply in love with him. But the point of the organization of the church must be to impact community, mustn't it? It must be to make the place better. It must be to not just pray, well, let it be on earth as it is in heaven, but then actually to turn up on earth and say, well, we have the plans. We know what it's like in heaven. We are eavesdropping on the plans of heaven. We know the God who rules it, and we're going to bring his government and his order and his beauty and his care into this place. And when I listen to the story of the Israelites there who were called to pray for and seek the welfare of the city, I think about people in this church and in other churches who do exactly that. So if you'll indulge me, I just want to tell you some stories. And I want us to have a conversation about what we love about church, what we think church can really achieve. There's a guy in a, in a coral-colored hoodie in the front corner there, Bryce, who will tell you he's not the bravest South African. He's not all rah-rah. There's a part of his heart that sometimes wonders, is it going to go okay? I hope it's fair for me to say that. Um, but he reckons, no, no, if I'm here, God's put me here on purpose, and so I'm going to start trying to do something to make it better. And he set up his whole business to try and bless young children and to get them into their callings and into their sweet spots. And, and then he decides one day he wants to mow the center island of the whole M13 and I thought that was a great idea. And then the Department of Transport said that they'd lock us up and fine us if we did that. So we didn't do that. Um, and then Bryce, goes, well, I'm going to get the churches together and we're going to start praying. We're going to be like the people in Jeremiah 29 and just pray for our city. And he did his first one last week. And there were people from the Catholic Church and St. Agnes Anglican Church and various other churches. And we got together um, and people from this church. And we voted on some stuff we wanted to pray for. And then I quickly taught the people how to pray in public because you should have to get a license first. Many people who pray in public just don't help us, right? Because they ramble and they moan and they describe all the problems and then they sneakily sort of take pot shots at someone who they hope is listening while they're praying. And it's like, can you just do that by yourself, please? We don't want to have to hear that. But prayers that are supposed to be prayed in corporate are prayers of faith that declare who God is and what the future is going to look like when he acts and describes specifically what we're trusting for. And those are inspiring and fun. And sometimes the volume is a little loud as well. And so we decided what we were going to pray about. We prayed about those things and people had words and scriptures and we've logged all that stuff. And he's got some cool technology that allows us to track what God is going to actually do. And that little prayer meeting and the next one's happening at the beginning of this month coming, reminded me of, as a kid growing up, I heard stories about how we only got through our country's first free and fair election because the church prayed. And you might remember that this is absolutely the case, that the churches of, of the country got together and prayed, and our nation is this 
anomaly in world history where after all of that evil and darkness and anger that was justified and fear that was probably justified as well, we somehow managed to find each other in that moment by the grace of God, by the miraculous working of God as his church prayed. And I remember in that era that the church wasn't just praying, wasn't just praying for the welfare of the city, it was also seeking it. The, bishop, the Anglican bishop of Durban was, or kind of KZN was a guy called Michael Nuttall. And the Catholic sort of, what's the word, cardinal bishop guy of this area um, was called Dennis Hurley. And the two of them worked together and then with Muslims and whoever else down in Durban. And the Dennis Hurley Center still exists down in Durban today and is one of the most inspirational places. And it was the church praying for the city, caring for the poor, ministering into the heart of this place that I believe got us through that election. And then I think about the most recent election, which was also supposed to cause us to be split in two and everyone was going to kill everyone. And the church prayed and the peace of God still reigns here. Whatever is good in this country, I think the church can take some responsibility for having prayed for it. On another note, uh, do you know about Marion Hill Monastery down the hill here? Like, What could be more irrelevant and unhelpful than a monastery? Well, the crazy nuns who were in the Marion Hill Monastery in the early 40s and 50s in Durban. I mean, they planted that monastery there and then they started feeding people around there and establishing farms and there's a hospital that is still amazing that that monastery set up. And then these believers started reading in Acts about the Holy Spirit pouring out and that the church wasn't just supposed to be some theology club with slightly better morals than the rest of the world. The church was supposed to be empowered with gifts and the Holy Spirit was moving in the book of Acts. You see people having prophetic words and being able to pray and the people and they're healed and all kinds of badass stuff goes on. And so these nutcase nuns start praying that that would happen and start reaching out to pastors in Durban. And many of the most influential, spirit-filled, incredible churches in our city were influenced by these nuns at Marion Hill Monastery who got those pastors around and said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's just so incredible. And then those churches continue to have legacies into other churches now. I don't know if you uh, know about some of the amazing worship leaders that have come out of our city. Once again, just indulge me as I tell you some stories. You probably know about 363 and Gangs of Ballet and Majorzi and these people we know about, and hopefully Campbell College, who used to lead here, will be the next name you hear. But what you may not know is um, in the late 90s, some single Greek dude who loves Jesus in England started running youth conferences called Soul Survivor. And thousands and thousands of young people in the UK were getting saved at these week-long conferences, and there was worship and amazing stuff and skate parks, and, and he wanted to try and see if it could happen anywhere else in the world. And so he was at some churchy event, and this young Anglican couple um, who led a church in South Africa were at this event and met Mike Pulavachi and heard that he was thinking he was feeling called to try to do a youth movement overseas somewhere, not just in the UK. And they said, well, we have this church in Durban North. Um, why don't you come and try something there? And this is my parents that I'm talking about. And so this little church in Durban North called St. Martin's hosts all these pommies who come over full of the Holy Spirit and keen to do something and put on for year after year after year, I think 5,000 strong conferences for young people where kids are getting saved and amazing stuff's going on and, and lives are being changed. And at the first one, there was a young worship leader called Matt Redman who was just getting started. And if you know much about Christian music, you'll know that he's gone on to be huge and write incredible songs, many of which we still sing, like 10,000 Reasons you might know. And then a few years later, they sent a young worship leader out to be the youth leader at this little Anglican church. And his name was Tim Hughes. And he spent the year writing some songs. And now Tim Hughes is one of the most well-known names in the worship space. And at those conferences, it was Tree 63 just getting started, who then turned into such an amazing export from our city. And I think about those moments, and then I think about little moments in our church where we have praise and prayer meetings that shift people's lives, and then when we 
start to preach the gospel here, I know because I speak to many um, that there are folks who come to this church because they'd given up on church, but something here made sense. And then when we get some crazy idea to do a carols thing up at the farmer's market, then 1,200 people turn up last year. And it makes me think little churches are still the hope of the world. They always have been. And this thing, this organization, is the beautiful thing that Jesus is coming back for. Not the supernovas, not the great whatever fancy tree. I was trying to think of the name of a beautiful tree, and I can't come up with one. Um, But this one, and I'm not going to make an olive tree joke now, um, but it's this church, and it's churches like this that Jesus thinks are the hope of the world. I don't know if you know, but um, when Gateway Shopping Center was in kind of the gestation process of possibly coming online. Uh, my uncle was involved. He was a quantity surveyor and involved there. And he said it was dicey. There was sort of a land claim and there were some objections to it. I can't remember the details, but it was a kind of make or break moment and possibly Gateway Mall wasn't going to get built. And I remember that there were some churches around that area who decided, well, we want to seek and pray for the welfare of our city. And we believe that this is going to do good things for the economy and families in this area. And you may now argue whether Gateway is a good thing or not. Um, but in that moment, you'd probably have to admit it did a good thing. And so churches prayed, and then planning permission was released, and Gateway got built because some Christians prayed. And I don't know if you know that the ICC in Durban, which is a huge part of how our city actually works and is visible to the rest of the world, and the economy is driven here, the ICC was some Christian guy who went, I've seen an ICC in Cape Town, turn Cape Town around, we need one in Durban, and he lobbied governments, and he raised the money, and the ICC exists because a church inspired some Christian guys to go, well, we want to seek the welfare of our city. And you think about those big stories and businesses that seek to employ people and shift things. And then I think about households in this church who choose to pay their domestic workers over the odds and to give them medical aid and to pay them on public holidays and to get kids educated and to allow skills development to take place to the point where then your domestic worker is too well qualified for you to afford to employ anymore. And I think that's just as important and just as beautiful. And there are teachers here who are starting prayer meetings in their schools and expecting to see revivals break out in their schools. And there's all this amazing stuff that goes on. And it reminds me of the first sermon Jesus preached, right? In fact, this is even more cool than this. This is the first scripture we ever hear Jesus quote. Jesus who authored the Bible. Jesus who inspired the authors who wrote it who is not just the author of the Bible, but the subject of the Bible, it's about him, then when he starts his public ministry, he, out of everything that's been written, chooses one specific verse to quote. And it's this one. It's in Isaiah 61. He stands up in the dusty synagogue where he grew up, okay? And everyone thinks they know who he is. They know his folks. They've seen him grow up. They think they recognize this this carpenter. And then in that moment, it's the turn of Isaiah 61 to be read. And so he stands up in the synagogue and he rolls open the scroll And then very clearly talking about himself, he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies to all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. I just want to pause there. I remember um, it was in this church that I, I remember people praying for us that we would fall pregnant, and Bern and I struggled for ages, and it was apparently not possible. And then I remember in, it was in church that prophetic words were given about how it was going to happen and that God was going to bless us with a kid, and then we did fall pregnant. And then it was in this church, I remember, we'd had a, our first 
scan seemed fine, and I was in love with this little person. And at the second scan, there were problems, and it was the afternoon of a Wednesday or Thursday, and then we were going to have a praise and prayer. And I remember coming with this broken heart, mourning this bad news from that scan. So a praise and prayer meeting where this community gathered around us, and many didn't even know what was going on. But as people were worshiping God and praising Him, I felt despair leave and the love of God ministered to me and my wife in a way that could never have happened just by ourselves. We needed a community of faith to hold us. And that was then a community of faith that prayed and prayed and that kid went to be with Jesus and we didn't get to meet that child. And I remember in that moment where we should have been like, God sucks, what's the point? I'm in Babylon here. I'm in exile. This is nowhere near the promised land. And yet it was a church like this. It was this church that loved us and cared for us and got us back on our feet. And I can think of time after time that not just for me, but many of us, when you're in your moment of despair or feeling disqualified or feeling confused, it's the text, it's the someone who sends you a scripture, bit of love, and those are just as magnificent as RCC buildings that get built because human hearts are held in places like this. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes and a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. That's what the church can offer. Let's carry on. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks, that the Lord has planted for his own glory. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing cities destroyed long ago. They will revive them, though they've been deserted for many generations. And I remember standing in this church dedicating David after he was born and just hailing, just ugly, crying, and thinking like this. And, and I look at the other families in this place, and I think this is the safest place for my kid to grow up. Let's just be honest about it. In a community with people who love and trust God, who are raising their children to be influences of the next generation to bring the kingdom here, David is not going to be safer where I find a way to get myself a maroon passport. No, he, the safest place for him to grow up in the future is here, in a community like this, full of people who are going to take all the faith and God-given energy and influence they have and not direct that stuff to getting a Schengen visa, but direct that stuff to making this place better, for, to recognizing God put me here at this time on purpose. And I don't mean to bang on the immigration thing. If God calls you somewhere, he calls you somewhere. But it is disappointing to me when people who have the most potent message of all, the gospel, and who are connected to the architect and designer of it all, then feel like, okay, well, I need to make some plan in my own strength to keep the future safe. And I think God says to us, like he said to those Israelites, buy homes, get stuck in, make this place different, seek the welfare of the city to which I've sent you. And when I think about that, I get so excited about this community and what it's going to mean for our kids who grow up here and their mates and the ripple effect. And not just our kids, but I think about all the people who go to Tolatando and care for those kids and our shifting futures and the ripple effect of those 50, 60 kids who go out in this community, loving Jesus, feeling called to this place. And I think about all the volunteers who Sunday after Sunday are introducing our kids in children's church to Jesus. And this is the most glorious thing on earth. No wonder Jesus loves the church. No wonder he's coming back for her. I remember um, crying as I was trying to lead the funeral of Alan Fischer. So this is a few years ago. Christy Fischer's wife was dancing and praising God during worship at her own husband's funeral and thinking, how does this exist on earth in this broken, corrupt, painful place? How can pockets like this exist? And I remember our church getting around them and being heartbroken with her and praising God with her and seeing him hold that little family together and love them. And I can remember driving from Durban, breaking all the speed limits up to Hillcrest when I'd heard that Paul Redden had died and thinking, I can't 
cope with losing my mates and another funeral for a friend of mine and getting there in the church, being at the ICU and praying and him miraculously coming around and he has a new heart and is swanning around in Croatia at the moment having the holiday we all wish we could have living his best life, idiot. And it's like God is, God is at work in this place. People get healed here. People find families here. People who thought they had no business being involved in God's plans turn up here and then discover this is the group that isn't just going to heal them, but is going to send them out into the world to fix what's broken and beautify what's ugly and heal what's sick and bring the kingdom of God and seek and pray for the welfare of the city. And that is what I want to be involved in. That is what I know excites you about church, not just a place to come and practice for heaven. Now, as I close, I just want to give you one last thought that has been just huge for me over the last few days as I've been expecting this. Isaiah 61 sounds quite intimidating, doesn't it? Release captives, take those who are in mourning, give them rejoicing. It's like, well, God, maybe you should do that. I don't know how I could even be involved, right? When rebuilding ancient ruins, it's like I can just barely fix the fence at my own house. Like, oh my goodness. And, uh, And yet, if you're a Christian here today, if you're a believer in Jesus, I want to just remind you All the people that do this wonderful Isaiah 61 type of stuff, anyone that I've spoken to who has done some big and glorious thing and changed their community in some way, the Christians who set up the ICC, Nklantla, who you've heard about, who's setting up an outstandingly excellent school of coding and robotics in the middle of Amlazi to set up those kids to be able to be entrepreneurs in the tech and financial spaces. These people who do this glorious stuff in the name of God, all of them, Do it for the same reason. And the reason is not that they're simply more impressive and more connected and have more hours in the day than you and I. The reason is not that they're just selfless and we're all selfish. The reason is that they remember that there was this moment where the absolutely beautiful, glorious, innocent man named Jesus came and saved them. And he came and grabbed hold of them and said, I'm doing this for you. And Jesus was then crucified on our behalf and took the penalty we were supposed to take, and then defeated death. Jesus defeated death. Like, what is more impressive than that? And rose from the dead and looked into every one of their eyes and says, oh, you can do the same. I defeated death so that you, like me, can live into eternity in relationship with our Father. And when I think about the fact that Jesus saved me and changed a human heart with this incredible message, the gospel, the good news that God is for you, not against you, that God can heal sinners and bring us back into relationship with him, that we don't have to be orphans floating around on earth, but that we've been adopted into this royal family. When I think about that story and the fact that God then speaks to me and you and says, not only have I raised you from death and sin, but I've now gifted you and graced you with amazing stuff, and you never have to fear because I'm going to be with you always. And you never have to feel alone because I'm going to be with you always. And you can be confident in every situation because I'm going to be with you always. And nothing can separate you from my love. When I think about that story, it starts to make sense that God calls the gospel the power of God. Not the ICCs that get built. Not the supernovas. Not the amazing Christian businessmen who shift the course of nations. That stuff's cool. It's the gospel. It's that old simple story that you're probably tired of hearing that God loved you and came for you and died for you and rose again and has brought you into new life. That is the most impressive most potent thing God has ever done. And I'm 
guilty. I don't know if you are. I'm starting to take that story for granted. And then look at the list in Isaiah 61 thinking, wow, I've got to be pretty impressive to pull that off. If you know Jesus, and if you're fairly confident you're saved, you have the most potent, most impressive thing that God has ever done inside you already. And everything from that, everything flows from that. Every moment from there on gets to be anchored on this is the why. This is the why I do what I do. This is the why I employ who I employ or forgive who I forgive or join the Keep Kloof Beautiful Association and try and make disciples there. Or there's a lady in our church who serves on governing bodies of schools that she's not even got kids at. I mean, the governing body of a school is bad enough as it is, but at least if you're there for the sake of your own kids. And she serves on various governing bodies and has been so faithful for so long with this incredible gospel story just flowing out of her that now she's been invited to be the keynote speaker at the independent school's headmaster's conference. And she was sitting with me last week going, I think God's given me this message about integration and how private schools can help government schools and how we can imagine a new version of education. And she's been faithful with this radical story that she has and it's overflowed into other stuff. You have been given a radical story if you believe in Jesus. That old story is still the most impressive story and it has the benefit of being true which means it's the most impressive, most potent thing that God has ever done. And I would love to live my life and I would love all of us to live our lives with that as the, as the fuel. That's the why. This, this organization, the church, exists to make Jesus and the kingdom accessible to people by changing our community and welcoming them in and having them be affected by how heaven comes to earth even when they don't recognize that's what's going on. And the way I do that, the power I have to do that kind of thing is in this radical story that a beautiful, innocent God came after me, died for me, defeated death, and has invited me into that same life. And because he's always going to be with me, I can have confidence in every situation. I'd like us to end in a slightly odd way. If you're up for that, if you're going, yeah, that old story is still the best story I've ever heard, and yeah, it's my story, and I want to be part of it. Um, I want us to read Isaiah 61 as a prayer. Because here's the interesting thing. If Jesus started his ministry by quoting Isaiah 61, he then looks in every one of our eyes when in John 20, he says to his disciples, in the same way that the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Which means every one of us get to be stewards of Isaiah 61. So if you're willing, will you stand with me? And we're going to pray this scripture and declare that somehow this is our job as much as this is Jesus' job and trust him for the grace to be able to, to pull it off, if that's okay. So is it behind me? All right, we're going to read it together. Ready, steady. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing cities destroyed long ago. They will revive them, though they have been deserted for many generations. God, will you use us, please, for your glory? Will you remind us of the incredible good news of our salvation? Would you show us how that is indeed the power of God to transform things? And will you point us out at the stuff in this city that we can change and influence, at the broken things we can repair, at the broken hearts that we can hold close to the, to the ashes we can replace with joyous blessing. Would you show us what we can do? 
Thank you so much for including us in your incredible story. Thank you for putting us in your bride who you love so much. Thank you that you love us so much and that we have this incredible reason to to live our lives to the full and expect that at the end of that we will hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. We look forward to that moment, God. Would you use us until then? In Jesus' name, amen.